got a big push to the pulpit this morning. Thank you, Luke. Good morning. Uh, let's go to Matthew eight twenty three, and we'll be there into chapter nine, verse eight. Remember, we are in Matthew's club sandwich. Okay, three layers, three miracles, uh, and then a very intense teaching about discipleship. Three miracles, a very intense meeting of uh, teaching about discipleship, and then three miracles with a bonus miracle. All right, and so we have seen Jesus heal um, in the first three miracles of chapter eight, and then last uh, two weeks ago we had a very intense teaching about the cost of discipleship, and now today, three more miracles. We're in the middle of that club sandwich. Um, Chapter 8, verses 23, will be in verses 9 through 8. When Holly and I were, I was 33, Holly was 30-something, and um, we moved from Brentwood, or Franklin, Tennessee, from a church in the Nashville, South Nashville area, to a senior pastorate in South Carolina, in Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, Jonathan and, and Trey were like two and three years old. Um, so kind of, you know, taking our family, starting over in, in a new place. And um, when you're driving back and forth, you know, kind of making changes for the move and you're going to start owning more of your homeschooling and all that, all that kind of good stuff, you start getting on the hunt for resources, right, to, for, for training and instructing your children in the way that they should go. And uh, one of the resources that, that we, we came across during that time was a... Um, an Australian children's music singer named Colin Buchanan. Has anybody heard of Colin Buchanan? Okay, no, no, okay. Well, this will go great. Um, Colin Buchanan sings all kinds of really fun kids' songs and, uh, that are about, they usually are scripture or they are about scripture. Um, so they introduce gospel themes and ideas because they are, they are scripture. Um, but they also introduce theological ideas about um, the character and the nature of God. And one of the ones that we sang a lot in the car um, and in our home was, is titled, My God is So Big, right? So some of you have said this. So you know the psalm. You did, probably didn't know that Colin Buchanan, I don't know if he was the author, but he's the one that made it famous in our house, right? So it goes, My God is so big. My strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. That's true. My God is so so strong and so mighty. That's right. Nothing my God cannot do. That's true. The mountains are his. The valleys are very good. Stars are his handiwork. I'm doing the motions like I'm weird. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. That's right. Well done. And there are so many more. And you sound better with an Australian accent, by the way. I challenge you to add that to the next time you sing this on the way, on the, on the way home. You're doing it. That's right. So in today's passage, this is what Matthew wants you to understand. There are three different demonstrations about Jesus who is so, as it turns out, so big, so strong, and so mighty that there is nothing in your life that you're ever going to face that he can't have authority over. There's just nothing there. So let me, let me, let me show you. There are three things that, that Jesus has authority over in our text, and the first one is the natural world. Jesus has authority over the natural world. Look at chapter 8, verse 23 with me. As Jesus 
got into the boat. His disciples followed him. In verse 24, suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by, by waves. So when I was, was I was a kid, I grew up in rural Mississippi. I lived right across the street from the only park in town, Fireman's Park. And so I could look out the kitchen window if I sat up on the kitchen counter, and I could see uh, the Little League baseball games going on across the, the street. If I, and so when I finally got old enough to play, and I had a game that night, which was usually a couple of games a night that week, I would, after lunch, I would put on my white uh, baseball pants um, that were made of polyester and were really hot, and I would put on my black Moose Lodge t-shirt um, because the Moose Lodge represented my average team, and I would put that jersey on on my black hat, and I would just sit out in the front yard in the summer and wait for the game to come. I mean, I was that pumped, and because it was summer and because it was rural Mississippi, you know what happens in the summer about 3 o'clock in rural Mississippi. The humidity is already at 98.9% all day as it is. And it's just building and it's building. And I could physically see storm clouds form in the sky. And inevitably, I mean, I cannot tell you how many games got rained out. Um, you almost wanted the 7 o'clock game instead of the 5 o'clock game because you knew that 5 was going to get stormed out. There were these big, huge thunder, thunderstorms would, would build um, because of the humidity, right? Well, something similar to still to this day takes place at the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus is. Um, it would be very common, it still is, for a, for a squall to come up in the middle of, uh, of the day. So one minute, you know, you're, you're on a pleasure cruise on the Sea of Galilee, and the next minute you're wondering why life jackets aren't invented yet. Like, it's that dangerous, right? So, okay. so it, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for this to happen. But as common as it was, Matthew uses a different word to explain the intensity. He uses the word in verse, uh, in verse 24, the word violent storm is what my thing is. The word is seismos. Does that sound familiar? Seismic. It's where you get the word seismic. It's the word that we use to describe hurricanes. The earth is literally moving. So what Matthew's trying to do is he's communicating something that this storm is not just one of those normal squalls that would come up on the lake. He, he's trying to, to give you and I a sense of understanding that this is a borderline apocalyptic thing that's taking place. It's, it's, it's inexplicable and very abnormal as far as nature is concerned. It implies that the prince of this world is behind this storm, that it's a supernatural thing, that Satan's up to something, okay? So look what happens in verse 24. Jesus kept sleeping. <laughs> so the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. So have, have, you, ever, have, you, ever seen, have you ever seen one of those where, there, where something happens and people have completely opposite reactions to what just took place? Right? Like when you get on a roller coaster, maybe for the first time with somebody, and then you get off if you survived, 
and you go through the retail store and you look at the screen where all the pictures are and one of you is having the time of your life and the other of you just wants mom. You know, like it's that, 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 that different, right? That this is what's going on in the boat here, right? And in this scenario, Jesus is completely at peace and taking a nap, a good one. Open the curtains, he's not moving, right? Turn on the lights, he's not moving. Let the kids come in, he's not moving. He's totally at peace. And the disciples are so terrified, they are certain of imminent death. That's the extreme of what's going on in this moment. But the really interesting thing here is that the disciples clearly depend on Jesus. Can you see that? And this is going on, and the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us. Like, they depend on him. So there's a, they have this, this relationship with Jesus where they recognize that they have some sort of dependence on him, but they lack an adequate faith in him. So there's something more about faith than dependence. They call him Lord. They turn to him to act, to save them. They don't really, it's not really clear what they think that's going to be, but they turn to him and act, but they do not believe about Jesus what Jesus knew to be true about himself, namely that he has authority over nature. He has authority over nature. Jesus has the same authority over the wind and the waves that God the Father had in Jonah 1 and Jonah 2. So it's not surprising that the disciples wonder out loud. Did you see this in verse 27? They wonder out loud about Jesus' identity, which is exactly what Matthew wants you to do right now. Just like the disciples, you and I are to marvel at Jesus' identity as God. Jesus has a <laughs> Jesus has absolute authority over Mother Nature. Absolute authority. Which means he's worthy of worship, whether he sends a storm or stills it, or stills it. Because he's got authority over it. Tim told the joke, it's not a joke, it's a true story. Like anytime God does something for him in prayer, it's through a tornado. He's got two great stories about that. Whether Jesus is sending or stilling, he has authority over them. And Matthew wants you to marvel at that. But he doesn't just have authority over the natural world. He has authority over the supernatural world as well. Look at verses 28 and 32. 32. So we have the natural world and the supernatural. So next, when he came to the other side, just a nice little ride across the lake, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? By the way, that's a reference to Jesus' return. That's a second coming reference. A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they perished in the water. Now, this is a weird story. And 
you and I, as Americans, we don't really have a category for, for a lot of this, so I need to get into the context and the culture just a little bit because I think it will add some richness to the, un- richness to the understanding of what, well, of who, of who Jesus is. So, demon possession. We don't have a category for this. Demon possession is the indwelling of an evil spirit in a way that prevents a person from controlling his or her own actions. So the old movie from the 70s that my parents watched with me in the 80s because they did not know better as parents that starts with the knee, the exorcist. They, 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 that's real. <laughs> okay, that, that she could not control her own, her own body. Y'all are questioning my childhood now, aren't you? <laughs> me too. No, I'm just kidding. You, that's, what it, that's what it is. And sadly, this was very common in Jesus' day. There were exorcists in Judaism. There were exorcists in Roman, different Roman religions and, and Greek, Greek gods. Every, every religion had its form of demon possession and had its form of exorcism of the demon possession. So if you got diagnosed with a demon, it's like, we'll call the exorcist. You say, well, which one? You say, well, who's the best? Like there was like, you could go down, you could Google and figure out who, who's got the most five-star reviews. For it was that common, okay? So the point of the story is that Jesus is the best exorcist. He is direct, he is effective, he is immediate in his impact, and the demons acknowledge this in the story. They know exactly who it is, and they know exactly what's going to happen. They came out to meet him, right? This raises a couple of questions. Did you notice that the demon-possessed men were living in a tomb? And did you notice that Jesus took the demons out of their, these men that were living in a tomb and put them in pigs? Did you notice that? Okay. Because in Jesus' day, tombs and pigs could defile a person. So both were very appropriate residences for demons that also defiled a person. So Jesus permits the demons to live but they're not going to live in these men. They're not going to defile these men anymore. So he takes them from one defiled location in the tomb to another into these pigs. Now, did anybody feel sorry for the pigs? Because they went over a cliff <laughs> and they died. Okay? It's okay if you felt... It's okay. Um, I'm an animal guy. Okay? It's not Jewish if you think it's okay, but I get it. I'm, I'm an animal guy. I get it. One of mine and Abby's favorite shows is The Incredible Dr. Pole. We watch that quite a bit. Okay, we're basically vets now, by the way, if you need anything. Some preferably small animal, not large animal, but, you know. Um, and if you watch that show, even the farmers and the Amish, you know, they, they uh, even though these are farm animals, they love their animals. They have names, and they care for them, and they love them. There's a, there, even the pigs. Even the pigs, this is the case. But that kind of sentimentality that you and I have towards animals, Jews did not share, and they did not share this about pigs, okay? Because everybody that's watching this take place right now knew that these pigs were defiled, and their meat could not be eaten, and they actually knew that whoever was raising them was doing an evil thing by raising them. So they didn't have the same reaction when, under a demonic influence, these pigs went sailing over the cliff. Um, If anything, what this did is it gave the men who were now liberated of these demons, seeing them go into the pigs, a defiled place, which communicated to them that they weren't defiled, 
and then they go sailing over the cliff and they die, which brought a sense of finality to these men of their liberation of the demons. So Jesus is giving them a picture of finality, of cleanliness for them. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, we, we just sang about this. You know, what love could remember, no wrong we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, but counts not their son. Takes your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's what Jesus is demonstrating for these men here, right? But the story does tell us what everybody was talking about as a result of this act. Okay, look at verses 33 and 34. They were talking about Jesus' authority to do what he just did. The men who tended them, the, the pigs, fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. You remember what I told you about how Romans, the soldiers, where where the centurion and his men were, were placed in different communities, and if they saw a crowd gathering, that meant mob, that meant political unrest and civil unrest, that's what's going on here. They're not coming out to see Jesus because he healed two demon-possessed men and they too want to be healed. They come out and they beg him to leave. We don't want any trouble here, right? So Jesus' healing, his expression of authority over the demons causes a great deal of stress, a great deal of anxiety. The farmers flee and they tell everybody, not as a testimony, but to gin up a crowd to force Jesus to leave. The disciples saw Jesus' authority over nature and they marveled with wonder and shock. The townspeople see Jesus' authority over the supernatural and they want nothing to do with him. You know why they don't want anything to do with him? Because Jesus' power and Jesus' holiness expose our humanity and our weakness. And we don't like to be exposed. We don't want to be anywhere near something that's more powerful and holy than we think we can handle, which really is about us being more powerful and holy. And yet we have to be exposed. So this is the Sermon on the Mount, remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. We have to be empty of self to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And the only way to be empty of self is to see the power and the holiness of Jesus and be exposed. So Jesus has authority over the natural world and the supernatural. And then lastly, he has power over the spiritual world. Look at verses 9, 1 through 1 and 2. So Jesus now leaving got into a boat. <laughs> I think you'd not do that again, but that's what, you know, why, he would. Sure, why not? The disciples, I guess they would now too. They're like, okay, we're going to be fine. And they crossed over and they came to his own town in Capernaum. And just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice how different this situation is healing somebody who's ill compared to the healings that we did in chapter 8 right in the very beginning, right? So in the very first ones uh, with um, 
the leper that comes up to him, with the, with the centurion that, that comes up to him, and with, the, and with Peter's mother, the emphasis there was on the type of person that Jesus was willing to heal, right? The unclean, the Gentile, the woman, right? The outcast of society Jesus is ministering to and is willing to go to. It's about the outcast. It's about the type of person that Jesus is willing to do minister to. But here, this is, um, here Jesus, this is a man's paralysis. He doesn't address the man's paralysis. He addresses his sinfulness. Take courage, brother. Get up and walk. That's not what he says. He says, have courage. Your sins are forgiven. So the emphasis is not on the type of person. The emphasis is on the heart of any person. Okay? Now, everybody around hearing this would have assumed, much like Jesus' disciples do in John chapter 9 when they ask this question about a blind man, that the reason this guy was paralyzed is because of some sort of sin he committed. That was the assumption in the culture, that if you had a blindness, you had some sort of... that you must have done something wrong and God was punishing you to, to deserve it. Okay? And they would have assumed that, that Jesus also would have assumed that. Okay? But the dude is paralyzed, and Jesus says, have courage. Why? Because I'm going to heal you. No, because I'm forgiving you. I'm forgiving you. Jesus doesn't only have authority over the natural and the supernatural. He has authority over sin, over the spiritual. And you know who doesn't like that? Religious people with power. Religious people with power don't like the fact that Jesus has authority over the spiritual. Because it takes their power. Look at verse 3. Some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. The response of the scribes to Jesus' proclamation of authority over the spiritual, and by the way, authority over the spiritual is the ultimate display of power. Their response to him is to insult him. Okay, my See, the CSB here says, he's blaspheming. Well, that's very kind, and um, this man is a more literal translation. Yours may have that. But it's actually, the way that it's structured, it's like saying this schmuck. <laughs> it's an insult, okay? So they, their response to Jesus' authority over the spiritual is to insult him and then accuse him. This is what we do when we want to discredit someone but we don't have the facts, regardless of the person's character, we don't have the facts to, to refute what's happened. So we attack their credibility. So we insult them and accuse them. We throw shade because our power is threatened. And this is what they're doing to Jesus. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. So look what he said. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things inside your heart? Note to self. It is an evil thing to doubt Jesus' authority over the spiritual. It is an evil thing to question Jesus' ability to forgive sin and make you right before God. And then Jesus said in verse 5, which is, it, which is easier to say? Which is easier? Which is easier? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he dot, dot, dot. He doesn't even have to finish the sentence. 
he turned to the paralytic and said, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up, and he went home. Now, I don't know the answer to Jesus' question in verse 5. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Like, I don't know what's actually easier to do. Okay. But I do know that it is easy to say that someone's sins are forgiven because there's nowhere, there's no way anyone could prove that that wasn't true. Right? So in a sense, it was easier to forgive sin. Okay. So to prove his authority for forgiving sin, which they would perceive as easier because you could just say it and it would, you know, who's going to question it? Jesus performed the so-called harder task of healing this man of his paralysis. And I just love how benign it is. Get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. Can you imagine, like, it was just dead silent, and he, and he just sat up? So, so, you know, <laughs> she just walked off, and that's it. That's, that's, Matthew doesn't want you to get distracted about that. He wants you to understand that the power over the spiritual is what's being on display here. Jesus proves his authority for forgiving sin by performing the so-called harder task of healing this paralysis. And the reaction is exactly what you might expect. Look at verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck, and they gave glory to God. They were awestruck, and they gave glory to God. So here's what we have in this text here. We have three demonstrations of Jesus' authority, natural, supernatural, and spiritual. There is... Three, natural, supernatural, and spiritual, right? And these are all meant, the so what of this text, there are three things. So what? This is what I want you to do. Number one, Matthew wants you to believe in Jesus as he actually is and was. The reason these stories exist is for you to understand the absolute power and authority that Jesus has over all things. All things. Number two, These things that Jesus is doing are pointing the natural, the supernatural, and the spiritual are all pointing to the cross and the resurrection. The ultimate display of Jesus' power and authority will be his death, his overcoming in that death through resurrection, and his, uh, and his ascension to the throne where he sits with absolute power and authority. Matthew is telling you these stories not just to understand that Jesus has control over those things, but that those things point to the ultimate act of power and authority in his death for you, in his resurrection for you, in his ascension to rule good and godly as a king for you. And then number three, there's this. There is nothing that we are currently facing or struggling, struggling with that Jesus does not have authority over. Boy, would you just speak that into your life for a second? Put, look square in the face the struggle that you have right now and say, there is nothing you have over Jesus. Jesus has everything over you. Until you understand that, there is just little faith. And Mark, 
Jesus says, you have no faith. <laughs> Same story. The point is, you have, it's not, your, your faith is not directed at the Jesus who has power and authority. It's directed somewhere else or some other different kind of Jesus. After you understand that Jesus has absolute power and authority over everything that you struggle against, once you have that, you will have amazement at Jesus. Look it in the face and tell it, Jesus has absolute authority and a power over you. And your result will be amazement of Jesus. He may leave it in your face, in your lap. He may leave it there forever until you die. He may remove it. But whatever one he chooses to do will lead you to amazement of Jesus if you believe that he has power and authority over it. Now that's a God I want to follow. That's a God I want to follow. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to be amazed at you. We want to be amazed at you. Now, for sure, your authority over the natural world, whether that is a hurricane in the Caribbean or an earthquake on the West Coast, your authority over the supernatural, your authority over the spiritual. We, we want to be people who are amazed at you. We want to be people of great faith. And, and the, the, the power of faith is directly connected to the object of our faith. So give us a great faith to be able to speak your power and authority over the circumstances and struggles and relationships in our lives and see you for who you are in those things. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.